Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, MIA Ghost Trapped on the Bottom of Pearl Harbor. Today's episode of No Home for Heroes is the last of our 47 episodes recorded during our inaugural year of podcasting. I'm your host, Rick Stone, and it's been a tremendous honor for me to bring you these episodes this past year. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the Foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on YouTube or Audio Burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. Stay tuned while we tell you about a story that is probably not in very many history books. A story of heroism for sure, but a story of the indomitable will to live. We dedicate this episode to our loyal listeners at the Navy History and Heritage Command. History is not only made by those who live it, history is also made by those who write it. And now, on with our show. Today, as we said, marks the end of our yearly podcast production. It also heralds the 78th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. In a very special podcast episode today, we want to tell the story of three very young sailors who were trapped inside their sunken battleship for 16 long days on the bottom of Pearl Harbor. It's a horrific story. It's a nightmarish story. But it's a heroic story. If you have listened to our other podcast, you know that one of my assignments at the Department of Defense between 2011 and 2012 was to investigate the cases of young men, kids actually, who were still listed as missing in action from the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Hard to believe, I know, that 70 years later, we could still not account for hundreds of these brave heroes. My cases included MIAs from the USS Arizona the USS California, the USS Pennsylvania, the USS West Virginia, and many others. Our podcast this year have featured just some of those cases that I worked. After only eight years since I worked those cases, the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency has finally identified six of my 25 MIA case investigations from the USS West Virginia, and none of my 20 MIA cases from the USS California or any of the other Pearl Harbor cases I work. <laughs> you know, at this pace from DPAA, we only have to wait another, oh, 50 years or so for all of the MIAs from the Weavy, which was the nickname of the West Virginia, and the California to be identified and returned home to their families. Well, I hope at least some of you listening today will be around to see all of my Pearl Harbor kids finally come home. But today's story is on three cases I didn't work. I didn't work them because they were already recovered and identified, but not without becoming a part of each and every Pearl Harbor case that I did work 
and especially those from the USS West Virginia, known as the Weevee. Let me set the stage for you. One of the great things about working in the J-2 intelligence section of the joint POW-MIA accounting agency was the Navy ID card that I possessed. For me, it was a magic key to a time machine, which allowed me access to some of history's most incredible scenes. One of these was Ford Island, in the middle of Pearl Harbor, which had held Battleship Row along its shores on that fateful day in 1941. On Ford Island, I was able to see the seldom-seen backside of where all the battleships were moored. I could easily toss a rock to the still-visible concrete pier where the USS West Virginia was moored, and I could hear the ghost of Louis Buddy Coston, Clifford Olds, and Ronald Tubby Endicott. On December 8, 2011, my time machine placed me in the exact spot, exactly 70 years before that very moment, and this is what I heard. Some of you recognize it as Morse code, SOS, the time-recognized distress signal. Only in 1941, the banging was coming from deep inside the forward part of the sunken USS West Virginia. Clifford Oles was 20 years old, from Stanton, North Dakota. Ronald Tubby Endicott was only 18, from Aberdeen, Washington. And Louis Buddy Coston was the oldest, 21 years of age, from Henryville, Indiana. They had been sailors on the battleship USS West Virginia, which was hit by a series of bombs and torpedoes from Japanese naval aviation. The ship's commander, Captain Mervyn Binion, had been killed in the early moments of the attack, but quick thinking by a young lieutenant who was also the fire control officer ensured that the West Virginia would sink on an even keel, slowly into the muddy bottom of Pearl Harbor, with much of its superstructure still remaining above the oil and gasoline-covered water. Fearing a Japanese invasion, Marines were posted all around the harbor to guard against another surprise attack. It was worse at night, said Marine Corps bugler Dick Fisk. You could hear bang, 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 and then stop, and then bang, 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 from deep within the bow of the ship. It didn't take long to realize that men were making that noise. Pretty soon, nobody wanted to do guard duty, especially at night when it was quiet. The banging didn't stop until Christmas Eve. Jack Miller, a buddy of Clifford Olds, later told a news reporter he knew his friend was one of those making the noise that was coming from the bow section. Clifford had often invited him into the pump room for conversation, and just for laps, they would close the hatch and scream all manner of epithets into the airtight space, knowing no one in the outside could hear them.
<laughs> the term swear like a sailor comes to mind. Ronald Endicott had joined the Naval Reserve at age 17. He had been on active duty for a whopping 10 months when Japanese rained death on his ship and he found himself entombed and trapped in pump room number A-109 with his buddies Olds and Costin. Those topside on the Weevee also knew that rescue from below the waterline by drilling a hole through the hull would result in a blowout killing the diver. Those above knew it was not a question of whether Olds, Costin, and Endicott could be rescued. It was only a question of how long they would last. Day after day, night after night, the three fought on to survive. The three entombed young men who had only three years of service between them probably did not know that they were doomed. They wanted to live, and they had more on their side than their comrades above knew. Costin, Old, and Endicott had emergency food rations, access to fresh water compartment, and flashlights enabling them to see, and two other things, an eight-day clock and a calendar. And so they banged. At the end of each 24-hour period, they marked their calendar with a red pencil. They no, no doubt wondered, does anybody up there hear us? Well, they heard, but nothing could be done. I would probably have never known about Buddy and Tubby and Cliff if I had not found the original report filed by Commander Paul Dice during the eventual successful salvage operations of the West Virginia in May 1942. While many of the 106 deaths associated with the USS West Virginia were from drowning when the compartment hatches had to be closed on those trying to escape, Dice immediately noticed that pump room A-109 was completely dry. Three bodies were found huddled together on the storeroom shelf. Commander Dice saw flashlights and batteries strewn all about the compartment, along with empty food ration cans. Dice's official report is matter-of-fact, and it's devoid of emotion. Quote, Three bodies were found on the shelf of storeroom A-111, clad in blues and jerseys. This storeroom was open to freshwater pump room A-109, which was apparently the battle station assigned to these men. The emergency rations at this station had been consumed, and the manhole cover to the freshwater tanks had been removed. A calendar, which was found in the compartment, had an X marked through each day from December 7, 1941 through December 23rd, inclusive. End quote. Commander Dice kept the eight-day clock he found in the compartment until, as an old man, he donated it to a museum in Parkersburg, West Virginia, which was his hometown. He sent the calendar, a foot-high, 14-inch long calendar, to Naval Headquarters in Washington. It has never been found. It's probably still there in the archives of the Naval History and Heritage Command. Maybe someday, like Indiana Jones, I will find it in a long-stored wooden crate. 
Buddy, Tubby, and Cliff were buried in a mass grave with 22 others in 1942. In 1949, when the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific was opened, the bodies were disinterred and given separate burials. Clifford Old's remains were shipped home to Stanton, North Dakota. Costin and Endicott are buried in the National Memorial Cemetery in Honolulu, which is commonly referred to as the Punch Bowl. When Buddy Costin's locker was cleaned out after the West Virginia was raised, a water-soaked lady's wristwatch was found. It was intended as a Christmas present for his mother. It was forwarded to her, she had it restored, and she wore it until her death in 1985. The Costin family has made several pilgrimages to Section Q1105 of the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, where Buddy was buried, and I went there too. <laughs> Even in the cemetery, I could hear it. Tubby Endicott sleeps forever in the punch bowl too. You know, it's kind of funny, because he was tall and thin, but everyone called him Tubby. It was probably a nickname that went back to the time when he was a baby, I'm guessing. Clifford's family had him return to the family burial plot in the often cold and frozen ground of North Dakota. The date on all of their tombstones is wrong. The date reads December 7, 1941, but it should read Christmas Eve. December 24, 1941. Louis Buddy Costin, Clifford Olds, and Ronald Tubby Endicott deserve more than a purple heart and an incorrect date on their tombstones. They deserve to be remembered as three heroes who were only MIA for 16 days. Thank you for listening to this incredible but true episode of No Home for Heroes. Today's episode was inspired from the investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. This is our last of this year's 47 different episodes of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. We hope you've enjoyed all of these episodes. We greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. On behalf of our production engineer, Cindy, and all of the team of researchers and investigators at the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation from all over the world, we thank you for your overwhelming support of our mission. I'm personally going to embark on a different adventure in 2020, but the Foundation team will continue our mission dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. But, as Douglas MacArthur once said, I shall return. I've always wished he'd have said, we shall return. But, nonetheless, I shall return to the podcast episodes here again next year. Until next time, be careful, 
be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them. <laughs>